Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History. I'm your host, Donnie Waldron. Today is going to be episode 15. It's going to be Die Another Day. And the topic today is going to be about North Korea, South Korea, and the 38th parallel. And uh, we're going to have a really special guest on today. You know him as the sluttiest podcaster of the Bond world, uh, Jason Kim. He is just He's just throwing it out there for everybody now. He's been on James Bond Complex. This will be the second time I've had him. And then uh, he's been on Blunt Instruments, too, a new podcast. And I actually just did an interview with Blunt Instruments. If you guys aren't following that podcast, it's a great, it's a great, it's a lot of fun. Those guys are really fun, really cool, uh, really fun to talk to. So if you're not following them and checking out what they're cranking out, it's Blunt Instruments. And I think you can find them on everywhere. I know they're on Apple Podcasts. That's where I listen to them. But I'm pretty sure they're on everywhere now. Also, this week's winner of the Bond on This Day Award goes to Shamir from Shamrocks and Shenanigans. Double winner. It's the second time he's won it. He got it. He was the first one to do it on the IG page. And he also, when we did our Cigars and Cars thing with uh, Bud West, David Zeritsky, and uh, 007 Intrepid, he had the best question that I've ever had. And he said, while well, showing off my uh, my Bond Jeep, he asked me, how many times has Anna de Armas been in that car? And I said, well, this guy just know, this guy just gets me. This guy just gets me. So again, Shamir from Shamrocks and Shenanigans, again, this week's winner for Bond on This Day Award. So before we move on to Die Another Day, just kind of reflect on what we've been doing, what's been going on. I think what's been interesting is that the Epstein case, and I know I keep referring to this, but I just find it so fascinating. I just find this to be such a Bond topic, and I need James Bond to come down here and just sort out what's going on with this topic, because I think it's so interesting about how many moving pieces are involved in this. And the story's kind of lost traction in the U.S. I don't know how it's been overseas, but it's, it's kind of lost traction again. And what's been circulating and dominating the uh, news airwaves is that Ellen DeGeneres isn't a nice person. Okay. Well, I mean, it's it, okay. She wasn't mean. She was mean to her staff. I mean, is that, is that really newsworthy? Is that really a shocker? But they're just, they're just destroying her in the media, making her out, making her cancel her show because she wasn't mean... She wasn't nice to staffers and all this other stuff. And I just find it so interesting because Ellen was such a media darling. Like everybody in Hollywood loved Ellen. Ellen was like the star. She was the first one to be the lesbian to come out and scene. And boy, how quickly they turn on everybody. And just, I don't, again, I'm, I'm not trying to be a conspiracy theorist, but they are really throwing her to the wolves to distract from everything else. And that's been dominating the cycle for three weeks that Ellen was mean to a staffers. And I was talking to, to Bud West about it. And Bud West, always with his sage wisdom, told me, he's like, and that's what happens. The more you learn, the more you question it. And that's exactly what it is. The more you learn about things, you not you just come up with more questions and then more answers. And that's, so I just want to share a little Bud Westisms. Westisms? Westies? Oh, we should call them Bud Westies. Yes. Yes, that's what we're calling them from now on. Little Bud Westies, that's what they're called. It's a little sage wisdom from Bud West, and they're called Bud Westies. It's a thing. I'm going to start making that a trend. It's going to be a hashtag from now on. Hashtag Bud Westies. So I don't really want to go into like a big Die Another Day review or really give too much of a uh, a critique of it. You know, Die Another Day begs the question, how is it that Purvis and Wade wrote Die Another Day, and they also wrote Casino Royale and Skyfall? How are the same people doing these things and how is there such a discrepancy between the writers of what they think of and what cranks out? Because talent is talent. I mean, you're telling me that Purvis and Wade can write all these amazing movies that we've seen and also write Die Another Day? So there's got to be other factors that go into it, right? So it reminds me of 
Kevin Smith used to do this these tours where he would go around and he talked to colleges and you could see him in on um, HBO or Cinemax used to have him one of them and they would just he'd just go and they just publish what he talked about. So Kevin Smith was an actor, writer, director for Miramax in the nineties. Now Miramax in the nineties, whatever you want to say about Harvey Weinstein and everything else, those late night those late nineties movies were amazing. I mean everything that that came out of that studio was was gold. You know, before it was all Disney and, and Marvel and just whatever it is. The, the, that series, that studio, Miramax Films, cranked out some of the best movies of all time. And, and just like we we're talking about Ellen, you know, Harvey Weinstein has taken the fall for a lot of things. I mean, they act like Harvey Weinstein is the first person to invent the casting couch. Okay, like, it's it's been a long Hollywood tradition and everyone made it out to be Harvey Weinstein was the only person that had sex with a young girl to try to get a part. Like that was, that was the casting couch. There's an entire, go to Pornhub and look up casting couch. It's a whole thing. Harvey Weinstein didn't invent it. He's just the one that took the fall for it. And they made him to be the pariah of everything. Not defending Harvey Weinstein for saying that he isn't a, a, a creep, but the, to try to act like Harvey Weinstein is the first person, first and only person in the cesspool of Hollywood that's ever had the, ha- the casting couch. Like what you have is, Power. I mean, Harvey Weinstein has the key to somebody's dreams. I can make. I can put you in a film. I can make your dream come true. And anyone that has that power, it's it's corrupting. So I'm sure that even though Harvey Weinstein ate bit, ate the bullet for everything, I'm sure he's sitting in his cell being like, everybody did it. It doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean it's right. I'm just saying that there's a lot of people throwing stones in glass houses. You know, and just like Fiddy used to say. You shouldn't throw stones if you live in a glass house. And if you got a glass jaw, you should watch your mouth. That's, there you go, 50 Cent. I rap today, too. Which, by the way, 50 Cent was like the last really great rapper. Before Carter Third came out. And when Carter Third came out and that lollipop song came out, la la lick it like a lollipop, that was the end. It was the end of hip-hop. Lil Wayne killed it because everybody else wanted to imitate Lil Wayne. And we have a whole bunch of Lil Wayne clones running around there. With uh, auto tune ruining it, and they're never they're never Wayne. You're not Wayne. So getting back to my original thought here, before I went out of my tangent, um, Kevin Smith wanted to be in the running to write the new Superman movie, Superman Returns, back in the early 2000s, not the one that Man of, Man of Steel, but the um, the one Superman Returns that was the abomination that came out. And he wrote a script and he got it all set because he's really into comic books and he went to Warner Brothers and he's like, all right. This is my script, and they read it, and one of the Warner Brothers executives sat, sat him down and said, I really like the script. Really great. Good stuff here. But you know what I really want? I need to see a giant spider. And Kevin Smith is like, that makes no sense. Why would I put a bi- giant spider in my movie? He's like, no, no, no. I just got this vision of, like, somebody fighting a giant spider. And Kevin Smith's like, that's asinine. Why, it did, I can't put a giant spider in my script. It, nowhere in my script does it beg the part where I need to throw a giant spider spider in there and after some back and forth the executive wouldn't budge and kevin smith after going into these room full of warner brothers executives walked out and was like i will never even try to put my hand in this again because of how stupid everything that's going in there so kevin smith monitors the career of this guy and he watches the next film that he puts out and the next film that this guy this warner brothers producer puts out is wild wild west with will smith and selma hayek and if you've ever seen the movie they're in the wild, wild west. For some reason, a giant mechanical spider comes out and destroys a train. And it's exactly what Kevin Smith just couldn't believe it. Like, there it is. The guy got us. There he is. 
He got a spider. He was dying for that giant spider, and he got it. And that's how I feel when I watch Die Another Day. Somebody in the back was saying, you know, put the spider in, put the spider in. And that's why we get surfing and tsunami. Like somebody, some corporate guy was like, you know what we need? We need Bond surfing and like riding tsunami and, and icebergs and invisible cars and blah, 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 blah. And Purvis and Wade, who had only written World Is Not Enough. And the same thing, they made him put the saw in World Is Not Enough. The tree saw, they wanted to put it in Goldeneye. And somebody at Eon was like, we need that saw in a Bond movie. So instead of just naturally making the story fit, they just put in that, a whole scene just so that they could use that stupid saw that somebody saw, which is one of the weak parts of The World Is Not Enough. I mean, it's so script. It doesn't even look... It looks so done in the studio where he saws the BMW in half with the... It's just too much. And that's exactly how I feel with Die Another Day happened is that you got the first third of the film where they're actually doing a Bond film. It shows that they're in Korea, they started up, then they go, they go to Cuba, and he's starting on his whole adventure. And then some executive was like, you know what we need? We need Halle Berry's hot right now. You know who's a hot woman right now? Halle Berry. Get her in there. And uh, you know what we need? Invisible car. Put that in there. He needs to surf, too. You know what Bond hasn't done? He hasn't surfed. You would be awesome if he had those, like, giant ladies. And he's like, Rah! and then he rides it and kite surfs the tsunami. And then there's, then there's, like, a giant laser. And he rides off an iceberg. And then there's, like, this giant hook. And like that's that's how die another day feels to me and it just it's just it's just ridiculous and that my only explanation for anything that happens in die another day is that some studio executive got in there and even the director too i'm sure which who has his own nuances of it says just says you know what we're gonna make this yeah purpose and way do you have some good things but here's what we need add this add this add this and they didn't, they're not a Kevin Smith that can be like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. No, I'm not putting it. Why would Bond be riding a tsunami? It, it just makes no sense. But they have to because they're stuck with it. You know, they want to stay employed. And they're getting paid by these guys. It's the same reason why the Knicks have been terrible for 21 years. Because James Dolan bought the Knicks because he's a, the son of, a, of somebody who actually made something of themselves. He's been an asshole for 21 years. And he just keeps making horrible decisions. And somehow that franchise is still the third most expensive franchise in the world. You know, but that's what happens. James Dolan, sell the freaking Knicks already. I'm so sick of seeing the Knicks suck. Sell them. I don't even know. Just go do your thing. Just go do your cable thing. You still own the Rangers. Nobody cares about the Rangers. Oh, sorry. So with my last thing about James Dolan bashing and, and Ellen and, and Fiddy and rapping and Lil Wayne and Carter III and Lollipop, I think we can... I think I've done enough. I think I've done enough. I think we can move on to other things. So I think we're going to talk. Let's get into right into it. Let's get into Die Another Day, the topic of the 38th parallel, North Korea, South Korea. Those stones if you live in the glass house. And if you got a glass jaw, you should watch your mouth because I'll break your face. Have your ass running, mumbling to the jake. In Die Another Day, Bond is shuttled across the demilitarized zone of the DMZ which separates North and South Korea. Zhao is exchanged for Bond when Bond thinks he's walking to his death. The depiction of the DMZ located in the famous 38th parallel has long been a delineation of controversy and conflict. Korea was a unified nation for thousands of years, and the earliest recorded history of Korea dates back to the 7th century BC. Throughout thousands of years and numerous dynasties, Korea remained as a nation united. But by the early 20th century, Japan annexed Korea for itself. It was believed that Korea would eventually assimilate to Japan, Japanese culture and become part of Japan itself. This never came to fruition, 
and the annexation of Korea by Japan would result in foreign influence making devastating changes from within Korea. In 1943, during the Cairo Conference, Franklin Roosevelt, Winston Churchill, and Chiang Kai-shek, who was a Chinese military leader, all agreed that Japan needed to lose their assets at the fall of World War II. Now, if you listen to this podcast for any amount of time, you heard me talk about these conferences, the Tehran Conference, the Cairo Conference, the Potsdam Conference. They're important because they've really shaped how modern history has become. After the Cold War, or after the World War II, and into the Cold War, and even until today, these conferences really shaped how the rest of the world actually became. Korea, having been annexed by Japan, was seen as Japanese property. And at this time in 1943, the Allied forces knew they were going to win the war. It was time for them to start planning what happens after the war. Franklin Roosevelt wanted to have Korea be held under unified stewardship. Take Korea away from Japan and just oversee its transition back to autonomy. The Soviet Union had other plans. They were already well into North Korea and wanted their views in place. Korea was a topic at both the Tehran Conference and the Yalta Conference. Korea was central to the war against Japan for the Soviet Union was to join. At these conferences, it was agreed that the Soviet Union was to make its war on Japan after Germany had surrendered. And as part of the invasion, the Soviet Union had already marched into Korea and continued their invasion down into South Korea. So, again, the Allies forces needed Stalin, they needed the Soviet Union to stay in this fight. And the Soviet Union really wasn't on either side. They were they could have gone either for Germany or for the Allied forces, whichever one was more beneficial to the Soviet Union. So as part of this, we had to make biggest concessions to Stalin and the Soviet Union, and part of that was to let the North Korea topic, let them have some of the spoils of North Korea as well. America became nervous about the Soviet invasion and quickly had to define their militarized zone. Future U.S. Secretary of State Dean Rusk and Colonel Charles Bonesteel, I mean, what a great last name, Bonesteel? I would, uh, I'm thinking about changing my name to Donnie Bonesteel. Well, these guys were attached to the picking a line where the American influence began. Rusk used an old National Geographic map. Yeah, like not even like a State Department map, like literally a map from the, the magazine National Geographic to pick the best spot to make the line. To Rusk, it was important that the capital of Korea, Seoul, was with America. Rusk picked where he thought would be the best place, which ended up being the 38th parallel. He chose this because it kept Seoul in America and divided Korea almost nearly in half. At the time, the closest U.S. troops were still in Okinawa, Japan, nearly 600 miles away. With forces stretched so thin, the line had to make tactical sense, too, with what America had to work with. To many people's surprise, Soviet Union agreed with the 38th parallel as well. And this was still all done with the intentions that after the war, Korea would still be a unified country. In December 1945, at the Moscow Conference, it was agreed that China, Britain, Soviet Union, and America would all have a hand in the trusteeship of Korea for five years before letting them completely free of foreign influence. Now, as the divisions remained for longer, it was clear that the country was being more and more divided. The Korean Communist Party aligned with the Soviet Union, and the Republic of Korea was American-backed. With foreign powers fighting over who would recognize as the rightful leaders, tensions grew as both America and the Soviets heavily pushed their own agendas. Tensions grew in several bloody conflicts between 1948 and 1950. These escalated until when, on 25th of June, 1950, North Korea invaded South Korea. The United Nations, which was heavily U.S.-backed, had U.S. forces respond to assist South Korea. By the time the U.S. arrived, North Korea had taken over 90% of the country. It was the goal of North Korea to reunify the entire country under communist rule. The U.S. and South Koreans were able to push back the Soviet and North Korean forces back across the 30th parallel. Once there, it was the intentions of General Douglas MacArthur to take over North Korea as well. The U.S.-led forces continued to invade until China sent forces to assist the North Koreans. 
the U.S. decided that it was not worth starting a war with both China, the North Koreans, and the Soviet Union. In 1951, the two sides agreed upon an armistice at the 38th parallel. The fighting stopped, and North Korea was right back where it was before the Korean War broke out. The two sides kept the peace for the time. In 1954, at the Geneva Convention, Korea was an issue which nations once again tried to solve. While many countries tried their hand at solving it, at the end of the conference, Korea made a separated nation. Korea remains deeply divided in the nation today, as South and North Korea have gone in completely different directions. The cavern of divisions has grown deeper. North Korea has long been a thorn in the side of the West. North Korea and their brand of communism has far outlasted the Soviet Union. And still to this day, North Korea remains a mystery to many. Their travel greatly restricted, and their media even more so. While it seems divided beyond belief now, those 70 years are a mere blip in the thousands of years of history in Korea. It is completely possible for Korea to become one nation once more, and maybe even in the near future. I mean, we try to think, I know we think of history as this long time ago, and some things will never change, and we think of things as permanent. But in the history, like 7th century BC is when Korea was formed. And in the, in the grand scheme of things, 70 years over, as opposed to thousands of years of history for Korea, it's a small, it's a small little time, so who knows, it could be in the near future, or or when this all falls, or who knows how it goes. But I could definitely see in the future North Korea and South Korea just becoming Korea again. So to help come sort this all out, as someone who's lived in Korea, who knows a lot about it, who has a lot of good stories, and who is the sluttiest podcaster in, uh, in the Bond community today. So help, help me welcome him, my good friend, Jason Kim. All right, welcome back, my buddy Jason Kim. Welcome back, buddy. Hey, Donnie, it's good to be back as always. <laughs> Ready for dying? I only sell the gems for you. Like, you die another day in Octopussy. <laughs> you know, I don't know what it is. Like, I, I'm keep coming back to all the communist-related episodes, and you know, I think I think it's a growing trend. <laughs> well i'm happy to have you buddy i can't well, i'm excited again so today we'll be talking about the mainly the 38th parallel and, and the korean war so i know you have a lot of insight on that so um what happened can you just tell you a little about, about yourself about your connection to korea oh so i did grow up in korea and uh my uh my uh grand uh, my mother's side or grandparents on my mother's side they're they are north korean refugees and they escaped on a U.S. cargo ship during the Korean War. Wow! What an, did you have the story about how they escaped? In the, I guess, around 1951, when the U.S. U.S. South Korea and the Allied Alliance, uh, Allied forces had the advantage up. They, General MacArthur was able to push the North Korean forces all the way up to the top of the peninsula, like to almost to Manchuria. Had like 98 percent of Korea covered, and mm-hmm. during that time. Uh, you know, people were uncertain, so a lot of people, a lot of Koreans who resided in the northern section, northern parts geographically, uh, were able to board on U.S. cargo ships and U.S. I want to say cargo ships. It was the U.S. Merchant Marines. That's the specific force, specific uh, branch of the U.S. government, and they weren't just delivering cargoes to the U.S. military, but at, they delivered cargo to the U.S. military, and in return, a lot of refugees boarded those ships, and my grandparents were one of those people. Wow. Do they have any stories about what it was like before, or how do they feel about since then? 
not so much since then. They have more stories about, uh, I'd say, how their lives were during uh, J- uh, Japanese rule in Korea from 1910 to 1945. Because uh, a lot of people forget... Be- before uh, Korea became divided, uh, in 1910, Japan annexed Korea, the full peninsula of Korea, when it was still a United Kingdom, not mm-hmm. UK, a United Kingdom, at, like a di- kingdom. Like one and members, yeah. For 35 years, Japan ruled Korea in a very brutal fashion, almost similar to the way the Nazis ruled, Nazis conquered and, destro- and destroyed Poland and all the Czechoslovakia, you name it all. And a lot, and so my family, a lot of Koreans have very harsh memories of that still to this day because it's less than 100 years old. Thing is, you during World War II, U.S. and Soviet Union were an alliance, and they both want each wanted a piece of Korea because to expand their influence. So, Soviets uh, took base in Pyongyang, which at the time was the Jerusalem of, which was a very which is the Jerusalem of Asia, because that's where a lot of religious sections history. Like part, as far as like the Pyongyang, and you talk about the religious section, like what part of what makes Pyongyang such like a almost like a, the Mecca kind of deal? Uh, because before Korea became divided, like we're talking like 1800s when Korea was still like a hermit kingdom. I mean, North Korea is still a hermit kingdom, but that's where that's where a lot of Western missionaries, such as American missionaries sent uh, to spread Christianity and Western influence, and they resided in Pyongyang. So that's why, because like you know, for thousands of years, Korea was was a purely uh, a homogenous Buddhist country. But then Pyongyang was where a lot a lot of other religions came, Catholicism and Christianity primarily. What, you, what is more prominent? Pardon my What is prom- more prom- prominent now in uh, Korea as far as religion, I, or is it just kind of a mixed bag? Actually, that's a very good question, and it's very 50-50, so it's almost, uh, I'd say it's probably 52% Christianity, 40% Buddhist, because my aunt on my dad's side is a pastor and works as a pastor at a small church, versus my aunt on my mom's side is a, that practices like very weird Buddhism, but so that's kind of like the mix and match. Yeah. So, like, when when the Japanese came in 1910, they they came in and and they they ruled them. Did they have any kind of like religious oppression, or did they have what what was it? Just that did they view them as secondary people? What was the more brutal rule? Oh, they they were trying. If you ever so, they first first thing was they uh, expelled all uh, all Christian influences because they didn't want any Western influences. So. And in a positive manner, they brought a lot of industrialization to Korea because Korea was a purely agricultural nation until 1910 for, you know, like hundreds of years. So they wanted Korea to assimilate into Japanese culture. And not only that, uh, they were the military, the Japanese military were participating in like the ethnic cleansing rapes to like, you know, get rid of Korean culture and Korean, you know, bloodline and whatnot. You know, we we take it for granted so long ago, but this isn't your grandparents' lifetime. And we think of these things as these ancient histories that have no, that would never happen again here. But I mean, you, I mean, you went through it, another ethnic cleansing your grandfather did. And I mean, that's must be amazing to go through just haunting. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, we, we've heard about it during the, uh, the Yugoslavian civil war as well too. So and Korea yeah. went through it just as well too. What are your grandparents and what are your parents have feelings about Korea now? Do they wish that it was unified? Do they, have a side, or what's their take on it now? I think uh, 
you know, because I talked to a lot of people about this, about the division, and I'd say in some sense it is similar to the East and West Berlin divide, but I would also compare it more so to Israel and Palestine in that it's not a black and white, it's not a straight black and white issue as most Western nations see it. It's very gray because uh, the thing is like most Koreans see North Koreans not as bad people. They see them as under heavy ideology brainwash people mm-hmm. and so as a result a lot of north koreans do to this day escape all the defectors either escape to manchuria or try to make their way down to south korea in some sense but during the cold war in the 70s and 80s a lot of north koreans escaped to south korea or not escaped to south korea but they defected to the west via uh, budapest or vienna in a very similar sense that General Koskov escaped, uh, did his fake, fake escape in the living daylights. <laughs> Same thing, right? Same idea, the defections. The, was there the border and defectors? Is there a lot of people in North Korea still trying to defect? Or do you think that it's been such a heavy divide over these years that it's, it's almost indoctrinated that that's the culture? Or do you think that there's more um, chances for defection or, or overthrowing, you know, it's, it's such a vacuum of information in, in North Korea that I don't even, I, I really could not even have a nearly educated guess about what actually is going on in that country. I think, no, there's definitely still a lot of defections going on and it's, and some of the Christian missionaries that were based out of Pyongyang, they set up their foundation in Manchuria and there's a lot of secret underground churches in Manchuria that take in, uh, the North Korean refugees, and unfortunately, a lot of them do get caught. And when they do get caught, not only do the defectors, but the defectors' family who are left in Korea, they all get executed. Wow, and that's happening right now. <laughs> it's craziness. It's just such a whole different world from what you know I'm used to here. So it's it's just amazing to hear these stories. How about and you I, personally? What do you think about the the divide, or where do you think it goes, or or what do you think should happen going forward? Uh, I mean, it's a. Uh, in order for it to north for a unified Korea to ever happen, I, I mean, to put it bluntly, uh, the North Korean government has to be completely overthrown, and I don't think taking out Kim Jong Un is next ne- necessarily going to solve that problem because there's a lot of uh, factions within North Korea that you know operate. Like his sister has his his younger sister is about who's younger than I am actually technically. Um, she is pretty. She has some pretty crazed ideologies as well, too. And I mean, Kim Jong Un. There's a reason why he took he assassinated his own uncle because he kind of suspected his uncle would overthrow him. So it's not so much like if you take out one dynast, dynasty rule, um, you know, it will open the way for U.S. and South Korea to easily move into North Korea. It's more so there's so many factions within that government that that uh, it's yeah, I mean, kind it, of a it's, it's a ticking bomb, is what it is. Yeah, it's not like you cut the head off the snake and then all of a sudden the snake dies. Like there's, they're more of a hydra than a snake, you know. Yeah, exactly. So, and I know that when I was reading, like I know that the China's influence too, the heavy China. So basically, what the reason why in the Korean War it ended was that China stepped in and said, "Look, if you keep going further, you finish it. We're gonna step in." And we started. They pushed U.S. forces back. So what do you think mm-hmm. China's influence is with North Korea? And do you think that? Part of the reason why North Korea has been able to sustain so long is that China wants them to stay the way that they are and wants them to succeed. Oh, absolutely, and I think, or more, that's definitely more so in the post uh, 
Soviet era because like you, I think a lot of people forget it. I always explain this to people. It's like from the end of Korean War to 1991, like or maybe even 94 per se, when Kim Il Sung, the first Kim Jong Un's grandfather. For those of you guys who don't know, because it's been one full dynastic dynasty rule. North Korea actually thrived economically a lot better than South Korea for until the early 90s. Because uh, yeah. even though Kim Il Sung was a heart was a hardline communist ruler who ruled with an iron fist. Uh, he was a very educated, smart man, and he knew how to develop the country economically. But his son Kim Jong Il, you know, worshipped his father and built and used the entire state funds to build statues of himself and his father. And that that's what bankrupted and caused the hunger famine in North Korea in the late nineties. So it's just it only took one lead one one. Leader change, leadership change to cause a complete 180 in that country. What do you think and, Kim Jong-un's legacy will be? Because I can't tell you one... You know how Kim Jong-il had such a staple and such a presence, whereas I feel like Kim Jong-un, I don't have much... What is his legacy going to be? Thing it, uh, I know this... I don't know what his legacy will be, but uh, I'll tell... Because like, uh, what his, one of his legacies that he'll have is, for better or worse, is that he was able to bring meet with he's the first north korean leader to ever meet with a u.s sitting u.s president or the south korean president and he brought people and he could brag to he's able to brag to the north korean people that he was able to bring world leaders at his level and unfortunately that's a legacy that he gets to have and uh, but dennis i do know that in, too i mean that's a big deal yeah dennis, <laughs> exactly he got the worm got, too i mean yeah so presidents are cool but he got the worm yeah exactly he he got to shake hands with the hand that touched Carmen Electra's ass. <laughs> that's, that, that's the best way to say it. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that hand got everywhere, but yeah. yeah. Even Madonna too, actually. Uh, oh, yeah. That's right. I forgot about that too. And uh, Kim, Kim Jong-un, he resembles physically a lot like his grandfather, Kim Il-sung. And Kim Il-sung is still revered in some respects in North because, you know, he founded North Korea. And that's the image that they're tr- that North Korea the North Korean gov- government or the the propaganda section of the North Korean government tr- really tries to push really hard is that he's the new coming of Kim Il-sung. And, uh, and I tell people, and a lot of people tell me this, especially my family is like, considering uh, my family was very affected by the Korean War, like even, even though most people don't, don't talk about it in Korea or the U.S. because, you know, pe- people call Korean War the forgotten war. Mm-hmm. And they find it ironic that I work for the U.S. government, not only work for the U.S. government, but uh, I'm a, I program manage howitzer tanks, which are lined up at the 38th parallel. Because howitzer, for those who don't know, howitzer tanks have a very long ballistic range. That's crazy. <laughs> so, small world, right? How the yeah. world turns. And a quick tidbit about the Korean War is, uh, I, I do want to say this, because uh, it's called the Yu-Gi-Oh! War. So not like the Japanese anime, because Yu-Gi-Oh! is translated, because Korean War started on June 25th, 1950, so 70 years ago, a couple weeks ago. So Yu-Gi-Oh! translates to 625, so that's why we call it the Yu-Gi-Oh! War. Not the, not the <laughs> so, Japanese animation. So why, is, why are the cards called Yu-Gi-Oh! then? I don't, I don't know Japanese enough to know that, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny, man. Well, I appreciate coming on, man. One last thing before we go. you got to ask you the, the hard questions, the real tough questions. All right, you have to choose. You can either have 
Rosamund Pike, or you can have Halle Berry, but you have to have Madonna first. Are you li- <laughs> are you are you are you okay with going through Madonna first to get to the other two, or are you just leaving it alone and calling it there? Is it 1980s Madonna or 2000, no, no, no. 2010 no, Madonna? July 2020. Just just haggard. Oh, that's man. If it was 1980s Madonna, I would have said in a heartbeat yes. And you know what? I'll take the sacrifice and say yes. <laughs> brave man, sir. Brave man. I'm glad you're working for our side then. <laughs> I am too, and uh, and I hope to. I hope my uh, contributions both to the Bang community and the and the U.S. and Korea alliance, you know, makes a positive influence as well. <laughs> well I appreciate it, I, Jason. I enjoy because uh, I, I enjoy my work as well. In, enjoy my both my hobby and work, and I love communicating with you and as well as the entire Bang community any day. Well, I love having you on, man. I appreciate it so much. Thanks for sharing a little bit about yourself, about your family, about your experience, and what your thoughts are in Korea, man. I really appreciate it. As always, and I'm sure we're going to be doing this again more. I appreciate it, Jason. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Donnie. Thank you so much, Jason, for coming on today. It's always a pleasure, always fun having you on, buddy. Um, and again, it's it's just lo- it's great hearing people's stories, great he- he- people who have been to these places, who know about these places to come talk about it. So again, Jason, uh, thanks for coming on today. So kind of the theme of today's podcast is that there's a lot of overcomplication of simple things, right? So you look at what happened with Korea is that foreign influence came in and they're like, well, Japan can't have it, so we're going to split it in two. Okay, well, the Soviet Union wants it because they want to spread the communism. Okay, well, America doesn't want you to have it because they don't, they're scared of communism. So where to go, we're going to use Korea as a pawn. When you look at the movie Die Another Day itself, I mean, the Bond formula is very simple. Have a beginning, middle, end. Have a good story. Have a good spy story. Have some good action. Have some pretty girls. Have some boobs. And we're all going to go home happy. And I think what happens is same thing. Somebody comes in, too many chiefs and not enough Indians. And you know what I need? I need I need a surfing bond with a tsunami. And a, he needs to be like invisible car. And, 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 and they need to be like Korea. And then there's this like, this guy changes faces. And there's Madonna. And and then, and, 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 no, like you just overcomplicated. What well, is really a simple thing. And I think that's what happens with a lot of the bond movies when they go astray is, Look, Purvis and Wade wrote Casino Royale and they wrote Die Another Day. The best movie and the worst movie. And how do you do that? You do that because somebody comes in there and gets their grubby little fingers in there. And same thing that happened to Korea. It's very simple, but too many people got their grubby little fingers in it. And then you have something that was a unified nation that had thousands and thousands of thousands of history, which is much longer history than the U.S. had, than the Soviet Union, than any of these other ones have. But they come in, they put their grubby little fingers in there. They think that they know what's best, and they use Korea. You know, Soviet Union didn't want, uh, wanted to spread their communism. They wanted to keep China happy, use all that thing that's going on there, while America wanted stuff to spread communism. All the while, they wanted to punish Japan, and then Japan had gone in there and taken Korea. And then Korea gets left, stuck in the middle, and they're the ones that get screwed for everything. So... I think it's an interesting story. I think it's a good topic to talk about. 
You know, Dino on the Day is one of those movies that you can just... No, no. I'm not even going to go there. Dino on the Day is bad. It's really bad. Not even... You know Halle Berry got paid $500,000 to show her boobs in Swordfish? That terrible movie. Just... You had a half a million dollar pair of boobs in this movie. And it still didn't save it for me. I mean, that's how, that's how bad this movie was for me. But... It is what it is. It's still a bomb movie. I still like it. And then, again, it's, it's one of those things where you learn from the past and learn what went wrong. And hopefully they go and correct it. And hopefully there comes peace and time and prosperity for the people of Korea in the future as well. This has been episode 15. This has been Die Another Day. This has been the 38th Parallel. Thank you guys so much for listening in. If you're not following me on Instagram, it's Quantum of History on Instagram. Um, like, subscribe to my page. Subscribe to me on this podcast. Thanks you guys for all the shout outs. Thanks for everything that's been going on, all the posts, everything that's been going on. Thanks for the community. Hopefully trying to get a uh, event here coming soon for the GoldenEye 25th anniversary here on the East Coast for Baltimore. So if you guys are around this area, let me know. I'm going to start putting it together and I'll start posting more on my Instagram. So if you guys are interested in that, follow me on there. Again, thank you guys so much. Stay out there. Stay positive. Love you guys. Enjoy until next episode 16.